In a matter of seconds, as we witnessed on that stunning video, the the massive stadium was gone forever. The only thing that remained was a, a massive dust cloud and thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds of rubble. Now, I want that image to stick with you this morning. I want the image of that massive, that that huge facility being destroyed. I want to stay with you. I want it to, to linger in your minds this morning because that is the image I want to, to etch onto the fabric of your mind that will help us to understand what the scripture demands of every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. The title of the message this morning is Our New Life in the City of God, Compelled to Live for God's Glory. And this is technically part two. Last week we posed a very important question, namely, how do we live for the glory of God in the city of God? And the way we responded to that very important question was from the book of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. And in that verse, we learn that the first way we live to the glory of God in the city of God is by responding obediently to God, by not grieving His Holy Spirit. That's where we ended last week, but but Paul's not done with his argument. He's not done with his admonition to the believers in the city of Ephesus, and he's not done in his admonition to you and I as followers of Jesus. He continues in verse 31 and 32, and I want to invite you to turn there if you haven't already, Ephesians chapter 4, and stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. And may I remind you, as we typically do on Sunday morning, that this is God's authoritative Word. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Father, what a journey it has been as we have spent many weeks, week after week, pouring over your beautiful word. And as we read these remaining verses in Ephesians 4... May you help us today. May you help us to understand what it means to live for the glory of God and the city of God. Thank you, God, that for everyone here, every man and every woman, every boy and every girl who has been transformed by your spirit, for every person who has been regenerated, that they have been set free, that they have escaped from this this prison, this city of man, that they are no longer bound by its dictates. Rather, they live in a new arena. They live in the city of God. But we, we need your wisdom now as we explore what it means to live for the glory of God and the city of God. So may you do that work by the power of your spirit. May you teach us. May you instruct us. May we have hearts that are ready to hear and respond to your truth. And I pray that As we respond, we would respond practically as we wander around in this community, as we live our lives in our homes, as we respond as husbands, obediently loving our wives as Christ loves the church, as wives respond obediently as they submit to the authority of their husbands, and as as children respond obediently as they submit to the authority of their, their mother and their father. 
So, Father, may you do a mighty work as we pray so often in this place. May we respond with with hearts that are ready to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, living in the city of God not only requires that the followers of Christ respond obediently to God by refusing to grieve the Holy Spirit, there are two additional elements that I'd like to share with you this morning. The first element involves commitment. It involves a commitment, and we'll take some time to look at that. The second thing we'll look at is that it involves a constant focus. First look with me at the commitment, and it surfaces in verse 31. Paul says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. The commitment here is is simply put, we are called to be committed to a demolition project. Now, I hope you have the image of the kingdom being imploded in your mind. Because as followers of Jesus, the commitment is to a very specific demolition project. I hope you have a highlighter this morning. I hope you have a a pen or a pencil or something to to mark your Bible with. If you're using a Kindle or an iPad, this is something to, to highlight. If you like to write in your Bibles, and I encourage you to do that. I encourage you to mark up your Bibles. There are two words that I want to encourage you to highlight or to circle or put a star uh, next to that word. And the words in particular in verse 31 are put away. If you're using the English Standard Version or the New American Standard Version or you even have a New King James Version, this is how the Greek word will be translated here in verse 31. Put away. Some of you are using the New International Version. And in the New International Version, the Greek word is is translated as get rid of. That's what you want to highlight. That's what you want to underline. Or if you are using the, the Christian Standard Bible, which, by the way, is an excellent translation. The word translated there is removed. So either put away, get rid of, or removed. Now, there are several things... I want to highlight concerning this word. This is the anchor word. This is the word that that drives this entire verse. I want you to see many things about this word. First of all, this is a radical word. This is a a radical word. This is not a a passive word. This is not a mamby-pamby word. This is not a throwaway. And may I say this, there are no mamby-pamby words in Scripture. There are no throwaway words in Scripture. You know, Jesus said that every jot and tittle matters. Every definite article, every indefinite article, every noun, every verb, every adjective, every point of speech matters in Scripture. And it's especially so here. So the word, the words put away or get rid of or removed is, is radical. This is not a word for the uncommitted. These are not words for the uncommitted. These are not words for the fence-sitter. The word here comes from the Greek term that means to be eliminated. It means to, and you're going to like this if you like uh, military movies or spy novels or you know espionage. The word means to take out. Are you with me? Some of the guys are like, oh yeah, Kyle, yeah, oh yeah, take out. I know what that means. It means to take out. It even means to be killed. It means to put away forever. It means to destroy. And if you're not with me at this point, this one will seal the deal for you. It means to execute. 
That's what Paul says here. There is something that needs to be executed. And so this, as you'll see, is a radical word. Second, this is a decisive word. May I say these are decisive words put away. This is a a set of words that requires someone with resolution. You need to be resolute when we think about what it means to obey this here. It requires someone who is strong-minded. It requires someone who has strong convictions. It requires a person who is unyielding. Now, you know that frequently I direct my comments to young people. I think it's just the old youth pastor in me, right? I want you to remember that when I talk about being a, a person of resolution, a person who is unyielding, a person who is, who is bold and has convictions, I not only mean men and women, but I also mean children. I mean boys and girls. I mean teenagers. Is It doesn't matter how old you are, but you can be a person who has strong convictions. Dare I say, you must be a person who has strong convictions. This requires, these words require a person who is serious, who is dead earnest about dealing with sin. That is to say, you can't pick or choose. Oh, I'm going I'm to execute this sin, but I'm going to enjoy this one. Oh, I'm going to put away this sin, but I'm going to revel in this one. No, there, there is nothing to pick or choose from. There is no negotiating with sin. We cannot compromise with sin. Paul says it like this in in the book of Romans. Shall we sin so that grace may increase? You know what his answer is. He basically says, no way. Don't sin so that grace may increase. So this, this is a decisive set of words. This Greek word is also a word for disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are here this morning and you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ... This may sound strange to you because we live in such a tolerant culture. Everyone needs to feel included, right? I want to tell you that if you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, in verse 31 where Paul says to put all these things away, that this word is not for you. This word, in fact, most of you, if you're not a Christian yet, you will freely agree with me because this is utter nonsense to an unbeliever. If you're not a follower of Jesus, to have the Bible say, put away bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander, and also malice, that is foolishness. The Bible says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But listen carefully. If you're not yet a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I need to tell you this, that if the Spirit of God miraculously transforms your heart this morning, if He miraculously changes your your stony heart into a heart of flesh, if you become a Christian today, these words are for you. In fact, you will leave today with a, a transformed heart, you will leave a new person, and these words will be for you, and they will have important implications about the way you live your life. They'll have important implications about how you conduct your marriage. They'll have important implications about the way you, you parent your children if you have children. There will be important implications about the way you, you live your life in the marketplace of ideas and your place of employment on the basketball court and on the ski slopes and everywhere you go in life. You see, the Bible is relevant, relevant, relevant. Have you heard preachers say in our culture, yeah, the Bible's just, we need to make it relevant. No, we don't need to make it relevant. It, it is as relevant as it needs to be. 
And so this is a word for disciples. Now, now that we have established that, that put away is for followers of Jesus, it is important to understand an additional thing. Please understand that when Paul says to put away, when he says get rid of, when he says remove, we need to understand that this is a command. Please remember that this is a command that we are to receive from the Word of God, which, as I've already stated, is absolutely authoritative. I want to read a, a, a few words from Wayne Grudem. And in his systematic theology, Wayne Grudem says something that is, is vitally important for us to understand. He says, The essence of the authority of Scripture is its ability to compel us to believe and to obey it and to make such belief and obedience equivalent to believing and obeying God Himself. That is to say that to disobey Scripture is to disobey God. You've learned this, I'm sure. To disobey, disobey Scripture is to disobey God. But the positive is also true. To obey Scripture is to obey God. And so we want to remember that this is a command to put these things away. Finally, notice together that this is a set of words that requires commitment. The grammatical construction of this word tells us that we're to do this. We're to make a, a point-in-time decision that an execution needs to happen. There are six sins in verse 31 that we need to resolve in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives that an execution needs to happen, right? You think of the kingdom. That building needs to come down. And so the commitment here is a commitment to a demolition project. This is a commitment, if I might speak so candidly, to utterly repudiate all the values in the city of man that are contradictory to God and the Word of God. Now, taking all of these considerations into account, as we make all these observations about the phrase, put away... Turn your attention one more time with me back to the kingdom being imploded. I want you to imagine all of the planning that took place. I actually took a few minutes to just think about it. I'm sure there were meetings after meetings after meetings after meetings. It probably began in the city council, right? Where all those conservatives worked down there in King County, right? Wow. They got together and, and someone had the idea that... All of our memories need to go up in smoke. Every Mariner game you ever saw, every Seahawk game you ever saw, some of you might remember every Sonic game you ever saw because they played for a season in the kingdom. Someone had the, the brilliant idea, let's blow it up or let's implode it. And so a series of meetings took place in the city of Seattle. And once the decision was made, they, they put the bids forward for these companies to come in and have some fun as they would put the explosive, they would line the explosives all around the kingdom. And so all these meetings led up to this final moment. They, they put it on the calendar. This was before Google Calendar, but they put it on their calendar. And on that day in March of 2000, the kingdom is coming down. And so Channel 5 shows up, Channel 4 shows up, all the news agencies show up. And I don't know about you, but I watched it live 
It was amazing. And it goes something like this. Someone, the, the countdown is on. It's not like the, a spaceship that's going to the moon. It's like something's coming down. It was five, four, three, two. Oh, oh, stop, stop. I changed my mind. What? Stop, stop. I need to use the restroom. What? Stop, stop. I, 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 I can't let you do that. I mean, you're all probably thinking... Well, that would never happen. Once the countdown begins, it's coming down. But isn't it like that in the Christian life? Is you, you, you put it on the calendar, so to speak, that I, I've resolved in my mind that I am committed to the demolition project. Sin is going to be decisively dealt with in my heart and in my life. Please remember that a successful implosion requires a commitment to the demolition project. In the Christian life, we are called to make a commitment to this demolition project. We are commanded by God Almighty to make a commitment to this demolition project. Scripture tells us in this passage now, there are six sins that must be demolished. And some of you may be wondering, why, why did Paul include these six sins? We don't know why. Because this is not, as you'll see in a moment, a comprehensive list. He left lots of sins out, but he begins with this argument. There are six sins to begin with that we need to demolish in our lives. And before we look at them, look quickly at verse 31. And at least in the ESV, it is translated as follows. Let all... Now, may I get technical here for a moment with you. Do you know what the word all means in the Greek? It means all. It means all. Not 50%, not 80%, not 99.9%. The Greek word means 100%. And so we are told that, that we are to eradicate or demolish all of these sins. They are to be demolished. Let me walk through them with you quickly. The first sin that Paul tells us needs to be demolished is bitterness. Bitterness. This describes a person who is filled with resentment or envy. I want to challenge you to do something just, just for fun. This is not one of those conviction challenges. This is just something to be aware of. Next time you go to the mall, be on the lookout for a person who is filled with bitterness. You're likely to find one or two or even more, but they're easy to pick out. You can tell when a person has a chip on their shoulder and they're filled with bitterness. The Bible says in Romans 3, their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Hebrews 12 says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up to cause trouble, and by it many become defiled. When I was a youth pastor... I used to challenge students, and I will challenge you as well, that if you have bitterness in your hearts, here's what happens. Bitterness, this passage tells us, affects me. It affects those in my circle of influence and my family and my friends. And everyone I come in contact with, bitterness affects. It springs up and causes trouble, and by it, many may be defiled. Paul says, demolish that sin, just like the kingdom came down. Number two. The second sin we need to demolish is wrath. This is a, a word that describes a person who is trapped by fury or indignation. This is a person who is who's battling with, with this kind of deep wrath. Number three, we're to demolish anger. Verse 31, we're to demolish anger. 
The Greek word describes a feeling of intense anger that does not subside. This is often on an epic scale. And once again, it's easy to to pick out people who are struggling with wrath and anger. I pray that it's not you this morning. We are also told to demolish clamor. Clamor is an interesting word that comes from the Greek word that means shouting. Shouting. Paul says, demolish that sin. The fifth word, which is translated slander, is a fascinating word for me. I want to give you the Greek word, and 100% of you will know what the translation of that Greek word is. Are you ready? The Greek word is blasphemia. Blasphemia. You say, that sounds a lot like blasphemy. And so, here the word blasphemia is translated slander. It means this. It means to use abusive words that are falsely spoken that damage another person's character or reputation. That's one of the ways that you can engage in the sin of blasphemy. And Paul says, blow it up. Demolish it. Don't do that anymore. Finally, Paul says, sixthly, that there is the sin of malice that needs to be dealt with. It needs to be blown up. It needs to be executed. The word malice is the word that means the perversion of moral principles. Now, what's fascinating to me is if you would hold your finger in Ephesians chapter 4, go over to Colossians chapter 3. And something really interesting happens. In Colossians chapter 3, if you will look just for a moment at verse 8, Paul summarizes some sins here to the, to the believers in the, the city of Colossae that need to be dealt with. He says in verse 8, you must put them away. Now, this is a, a different word. It's the translation of a different Greek word to put away, but it has the same essential meaning as, as Paul means in Ephesians 4 verse 31 to put away. He says, put these away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouths. You see, he really duplicates and then he adds another sin, things that, are be dealt, things that are dealt with in our lives. And so scripture admonishes us in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, let's get really, really practical. Really practical. These sins that we have just described, both in Ephesians and also in the book of Colossians, will surface from time to time. You've learned that, right? You slip, uh, you fall, you stumble. They will surface from time to time. And so, Paul the Apostle is not naively assuming that we will never, ever again be, be hindered or tripped up by these sins. But here's what we need to remember. In the event that we are tripped up by one of these sins, let's say that you begin to struggle with bitterness, and you remember this day on, on July the 1st, 2018, when, oh man, that's something I need to implode. That's something that needs to be demolished. As you face that sin of bitterness, what do you do with it? You run to the cross. You run to the cross and you say, God, I, I did it again. 
I'm struggling with how I have a bitter heart toward my friend, toward my neighbor, toward my spouse, towards my employee, toward a teacher at school, whatever it may be. Please forgive me. And the word of God tells us that he will forgive that sin of bitterness. He is so good to us. He is so good to us, rather. Our task now is to to make a decisive break with these sins. We are to make a commitment to the demolition project. And remember that each of the sins that God calls us to demolish, where do they originate? They originate right here in our hearts. The reason we struggle struggle with bitterness and and anger and, and wrath and all the other sins that Paul describes is because we have heart problems. So may I encourage you to to pray along with our dear friends, the Puritans. Here's what one Puritan writes. He says, O God, the author of all good, I come to thee for grace another day will require for its duties and events. I step out into this wicked world. I carry about with me an evil heart. I know that without thee, I can do nothing. That everything with which I shall be concerned, however harmless in itself, may prove an occasion of sin or folly, unless I am kept by thy power. Hold me thou up, and I shall be safe. Preserve my understanding from subtlety of error, my affections from love of idols, my character from stain of vice, my profession from every form of evil. And so you see, living in the city of God, first of all, requires a very, very pointed commitment. This is a commitment to the demolition project. But there's one final thing that Paul shares with us and admonishes us with as he concludes Ephesians chapter 4. He says that there also must be a constant focus. There must be a constant focus. In verse 32, he says it like this, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You see, the constant focus here is a focus on consistent Christ-like behavior. This needs to be the dominant theme in our lives. That is to say, Paul is calling for outward acts of love to other people. And he lists three things, as you can see. First, he says, we are to be a people of kindness. The word translated kindness here means pleasant, not harsh. Have you ever said to yourself, I I think I just said something harsh to someone? That's a time when we go to the third thing in verse 31, and you say, please forgive me. I was not kind with, with you. I was harsh. The word describes a person who is benevolent. And, of course, we know who the greatest exemplar of kindness is. It's none other than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the greatest example of what it means to be a person of kindness. Romans 2 verse 4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Or again in Matthew 11, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is, what? Easy. That's the word translated kindness. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Or the Apostle Peter, a a man who I think most of you know, struggled mightily with being a person of kindness. God was so kind to Peter, was he not? For the guy that just kept putting his boot in his mouth. For the guy who denied him three times and God ended up using him in a mighty way. And enabling him to write First and Second Peter. He says in First Peter chapter 2, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Indeed, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. That word good comes from the same word translated as kindness in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 31. And so living in the city of God means that our constant focus is outward. Our constant focus is demonstrating kindness to other people. And so may I get practical once again. Are there ways that you can think of that you can show kindness to people? It was probably about 30 years ago. I was driving down the road and a friend of mine popped in my mind and I thought, oh, I should jot a note to that person. And it was the strangest thing. I thought, you know... I, I will think thoughts like that. How many of you have ever had a thought? I should do something kind for someone. Keep your hand up if you didn't do it. Have you ever done it? It's like, so it was about 30 years ago, and the thought popped into my mind, I should do something kind for my friend. And so when I stopped my car, I literally thought, I just need to do it. And so that's something that that. I I have been personally growing in because there are many times I think, oh, I need to call this person. I need to send this person an email or I should take this person out for coffee or this person out for dinner or whatever it is to extend an act of kindness. One of the greatest things that can happen at Christ Fellowship is when you are prompted, when you're prompted to be kind to someone, this is a simple one, just be kind to someone. And watch what happens in our midst. And so maybe it's someone in your family. Maybe it's one of your friends. Maybe it's someone in the church family. Ask yourself, who is it that I can extend kindness to? Now let's do something I've probably never done before. From time to time I will challenge you and I will say, let's get practical. Let me encourage you to do it. And then, man, the the week starts on Monday and I start getting all these emails and like gifts are pouring in. I'm like, no, no, no. I don't mean me. In fact, please do this. Don't do anything kind for me. At least this week. Find someone else in the church family. Find someone in the church community and say, you know what? There's something practical. I'm just going to be kind to someone. That's what God calls you and I to do. That's what it means to be constantly focused on Christ-like behavior. But there's something else here that emerges in verse 32. Paul also says that we are to have a constant focus on being tender-hearted. That comes from the word, and it's a fascinating Greek word. It means to be a person of compassion. The Greek word, and Jereen's going to remember this, it's the word, you remember Jereen as Pastor Wayne preached on this passage, it's the Greek word splachna. You remember Slotina? You know what it means? It means guts. This is a, this is a young people word. Splotchna. Don't forget it. It means guts. And so when Paul says to be tender-hearted, that's the word splotchna. It refers to your bowels. The word means that, that deep down in the deepest part of your guts, you're a tender-hearted person. Splotchna. You're a person who is filled with compassion. Here's the word translated in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. 
Peter says, finally, all of you have a unity of mind, sympathy, and brotherly love, a tender heart, splotchna. Have a, a tender heart filled with compassion that comes right from your guts. There's a final thing that Paul says here. That we are to focus on this Christ-like behavior by having forgiving hearts. It means to, to be a person of generosity. It means being willing to cancel a debt. Now here we are with, with many people here this morning. And my, my suspicion is that most of us have someone that we probably need to extend forgiveness to. The Word of God says we are to be a people who graciously forgive. And notice how Paul says it. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3 verses 12 and 13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another... And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. These areas of Christ-like behavior, namely kindness, tenderness, and forgiveness, are attitudes that arise from our hearts. And because these attitudes and actions arise in our hearts, we need to understand something very important this morning. We need to realize that we need the sovereign grace of God to prompt this kind of behavior. We need the sovereign grace of God to enable you and I to be people committed to kindness and having tender hearts and forgiving one another. Simply put, you can't do it on your own. You know, we live in a culture that tells us if you need help, you go to Barnes & Noble and you get a book and you read it and it'll be a self-help book. Well, I need to tell you that there isn't a self-help book that has ever been written that will help you with this constant focus. There isn't a book around that will help you be a person of kindness, tenderheartedness, and having a forgiving heart. So trying harder is not the answer. Reading a book is not the answer. Watching Dr. Phil is not the answer. Listening to Tony Robbins is certainly not the answer. Getting advice from Oprah is not the answer. Gritting your teeth is not the answer. The only answer is to turn to the all-sufficient grace which is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the truth point this morning. Living to the glory of God and the city of God requires a commitment and a constant focus. One, you must make a commitment to the demolition project. Two, you must focus on Christ-like behavior. But here is the key point. Now, this is the truth point. Let me give you the key point. This is the key takeaway. You are totally dependent on the grace of God. You are totally dependent on the grace of God. My conviction is this. There are scores of Christians who understand the gospel. They understand the gospel that tells them that they need to turn from their sin, and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is to say, they need to receive the grace of God and be forgiven by God because of what Jesus accomplished on Calvary's cross. But some of you 
While you may understand the gospel, you fail to understand that grace not only delivered you on the day you became a Christian, but grace delivers you daily from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. The gospel of grace, the saving benefits of Jesus on the cross, liberate you from both the penalty of sin and the power of sin. You see, we are are totally dependent on God. It is 100% God. So when you have victory over sin, you can't congratulate yourselves. When you have victory over a sinful habit, you can't take credit for it. In your journal, you can't say, man, I am such a good gal. Or I am such a good guy. When it comes to Christians, I, I am close to perfect. Realize this. You can't do it on your own. I can't do it on my own. We are totally dependent on the grace of God to transform our sinful hearts. Listen to the promise that we find in Ezekiel 36. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, a new heart... A new heart will enable you to make a commitment to the demolition project. A new heart will also enable you to maintain that constant focus, the focus on Christ-like behavior. And so if the challenge of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32 seem like, if it seems like an impossible challenge, you would be exactly right. If you walk out of here today and say, oh yeah, verses 31 and 32, piece of cake. I got it. You don't understand the passage. You need to leave this morning and realize, wow, I can't do it. I simply can't do it. I don't have the ability to obey. obey. I don't have the, the, the inclination to obey. I need the grace of God. And when you receive the grace of God, He enables your your feet, He enables your hands, He enables your eyes, He enables your lips, He enables your ears, so that you can be that God-centered person that He calls you to be. God transforms your affections and your motivations. When you receive grace, everything changes. Everything changes. And so I would ask this morning, have you received a new heart? Have you received grace? And perhaps today is the day of salvation for someone. Now, for the vast majority of you, if you're a Christian today, please know that the power of the resurrected Christ indwells within you. Did you know that you have the the supernatural power to commit to the demolition project. You say, I thought you said I couldn't do it. That's right. You can't do it. But because God has given every Christ follower a new heart and a new spirit, now your inclinations have changed. Now your propensities have changed. Now your desires have changed. Now your abilities have changed. Now you have the ability, by God's grace, to commit to the demolition project. You have the ability, by God's grace, to enable you for this constant focus of Christ-like behavior. I trust this morning that this week you will live by faith in the Son of God who died and gave himself for you, that the Spirit of God will, will transform the way 
that you live. You see, our Christian life should be something like this on a scale. Up and maybe some downs and up and down and up and up and up. Why? Because God promises to conform us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we are a project that God takes on and he will complete the good work that he started. Your habits will be transformed. Your patterns will be transformed. The way you live your life will be transformed. Just this morning, I read a new book that's dedicated to men, Christian men. And the author said this, and it really stuck out to me. He said, you are a son of Christ, not a son of culture. You are a daughter of Christ, not a daughter of culture. And so you and I, if we're followers of Jesus, are residents in the city of God. And in that city of God, we have a new passion to live for the glory of God. I want to conclude by saying, now, now get out there, tiger. Get out in the city of God and live to the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, what a journey it's been coming to this point and at the end of Ephesians 4. Thank you for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the promise of hearts that are regenerated. Thank you for taking away our hearts of of stone and creating hearts of flesh that have new desires and new inclinations to obey you. Thank you that by your grace we can make this commitment to the demolition project, that we we can rid ourselves of these things that hamper our Christian lives. We realize, God, that they will emerge, they will pop up from time to time. In fact, the Word of God even says that if any of you claims these without sin, you're a liar. So we look at these things very clearly, God, but help each of us to make a point-in-time decision to this demolition project. Help us to have this constant focus to be a people of kindness, to be a people who are tender-hearted, to be a people who are forgiving of one another. Thank you once again, as we've already, Jason prayed earlier, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you have set all of your people from the power of sin. You've, you've delivered them from the penalty of sin. And one day we'll be, sin from, we'll be freed from sin's very presence. Thank you for the victory that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.